This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. Our scripture that was read came from the Old Testament Psalm, the 15th. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to read it from the message version. Uh, You already heard it in the New American Standard Version, but I want to read it from the message version. And this is what it says. God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? How do we get on your guest list? Walk straight. Act right. Tell the truth. Don't hurt your friend. Don't blame your neighbor. Despise the despicable. Keep your word even when it costs you. Make an honest living. Never take a bribe. You'll never get blacklisted if you live like this. That's the 15th Psalm. For emphasis, I want to focus on verse 2 based on how the Message Bible puts it, which says, Who gets invited to dinner at your place? As I contemplated the psalm, I was struck on the fact that this is such a great question. Who, God, gets invited to have dinner at your place? Who gets that invitation? And, and, And it is perhaps the most important question that can be asked throughout the entirety of the scriptures as we read them. Who gets to come in? And who is out? Many of us, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we we believe that we already know the answer to the question. If you think about it, if, if I were to ask you this question right now, which I am, I guarantee that most of you would say that you are in and you are an invited guest into God's house because you are a good person. And the people who are out are the people who are bad. Mm. That's what you would say. Mm. You may even go so far as to say that you are in because you come to church regularly. You treat people with respect most of the time. You give your tithes and your offerings when you show up. And since you show up more times than other people do, then you are still good. So you get invited. To come into God's dwelling place for dinner. But whatever your reasoning may be, the reality is that you believe that you know enough about God's ways and you feel secure in thinking that you are in because you think, hear me church, that you deserve to be. If we are honest with ourselves, we think that the psalmist asks the question, who gets to come into your dinner place, God? Who gets invited to dinner at your house? And most, if not all of us, are thinking that I get to be there. Yeah, yeah. Because I deserve to be there. Yes, sir. Well, I have news for you, church. Mm-mm. None of us here deserves to be invited to dinner 
at God's place. None of us here have earned any right to be in the presence of God at his dinner table. I don't care how much you give in the offering plate or how well you think you treat your neighbor or even how long you think you have been a member of any church. The fact is, it is God and only God who makes the determination of who gets invited to dinner at his table. So, as we seek to discuss this psalm, I want to preach a sobering message to the church. I want you to be able to really think about yourself as we walk through this psalm. And so I'll be speaking a message that I have titled, quite simply, The Divine Invitation. The Divine Invitation. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. How excellent is your name in all the earth. You are Lord and you are God. You are master, you are king, you are supreme. You are worthy of our worship, you are worthy of our praise. And truth be told, O oh Lord, we are not even worthy to come anywhere near you. For Lord, our sins are but failures, constant failures. And our righteousness is as but filthy rags. Your word tells us this much. But we are grateful, O oh God, that because of your tender mercies, your grace and your care, your love for each and every one of us, no matter how bad we are or even how unworthy we think we might be. Yeah, yeah. Through the presence, the power, and the love of Jesus Christ who died so that we might find our way to back towards you, you have made it possible yes, that the invitation extends to all. And so, Lord, walk us through this psalm. Yeah. Walk us through this, Lord, in a way that will open up our minds. Let it convict the hearts of those who need to be convicted. Let it give assurance and comfort to those who need to feel a comfort. But most of all, let it challenge us, O oh God, to be better stewards over what you have brought us to and what you have given to us, that we in turn might love you with all our heart, soul, minds, and our strengths, and our neighbor as ourselves. This is our prayer. And this, O oh God, is what we seek. Bless us now. Yes. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Back in 2017, a couple of guys and myself took the 10-hour drive to Flint, Michigan, in order to donate 50 cases of water that we had collected as a way of responding to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. You all probably remember Oche and Shane, we packed up the church van and we drove the 10 hours and we delivered water as we said we would on behalf of this great con congregation and its generous spirit. The water we donated went to a place that was called the Flint Muslim Food Bank, which is an organization that partners with other interfaith organizations, with synagogues and with churches, and they feed hundreds of people on a daily basis. That's who we ended up finding. And when we got there, we sat with a gentleman by the name of, of Khalid, and he was our host. And Khalid was so gracious that I'm, I remember he didn't want to take anything from us until we first sat with him and had a meal. We sat with Khalid, and 
we spoke about many things. And he talked to us about some of the challenges, but mostly he wanted us to understand how he considered that the thing to be most important is relationships. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make that point to us. This person we had never met before in our life wanted us to understand from his perspective the importance of relationship. Didn't matter if he was Muslim or if we were Christian or what. He just wanted to know that as far as he was concerned, the most important thing was relationships and how we treated each other. Back then, we discussed the challenges that the nation was facing and the relationships between the community and with the police. We spoke of relationships between black people and white people. We spoke of relationships between citizens and immigrants. And of course, we spoke of the relationship between the religious communities. We spoke of all of these relationships. And I'm sad to say that even today, nothing much has changed. Mm. Nothing much mm. has changed. We discussed their stories of some of the injustices that they experienced and throughout all of our dialogue, I kept thinking to myself, and I remember, why am I even here? I remember thinking to myself, why did I come here? And I, I quickly came to realize that it was a lot more than simply just delivering water. God was up to something that I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I knew it was much more than simply drinking water. Of all the churches, of all the synagogues, of all of these different religious groups, why this little church called Allen Temple AME Church was at a Muslim food bank delivering water. But as we walked through the halls of their establishment and we got better acquainted, I noticed that there was a poster on the wall and the poster had, was in their prayer room and it struck me. I looked at the statement on the poster which was actually translated from the Quran and it was an English translation and this is what it said. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from wrong. I was struck by that. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from wrong. And so with that in mind, I, I want us to look at the 15th Psalm and then I'll come back to why that struck me in a moment. But look again at what the 15th Psalm says. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And I'm back to the New American Version. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. The structure of the psalm, church, is clear. There's really three parts to the psalm. There is the question, which we find in verse 1. Then there is the response, which we find in verses 2 through 5b. And then the third part is a promise we find in verse 5, part c. And so we're going to walk through this psalm for a moment because I think, church, that we need to understand something about who we are, 
who God is, particularly in this day and age and time in which we find ourselves. So the first thing was the question. The opening double question of the psalm makes an inquiry regarding who may enter into God's presence. Here's what it said again. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Before we can answer the who question, we need to first understand the what. The what. What is God's tent? And what does it mean to enter or to dwell in his holy hill? Psalm 15 is what is commonly called an entrance liturgy into the temple. Now, that's a lot of words. So let me talk about what we mean by an entrance liturgy. It is the psalm that they would sing or that they would utter when they were just beginning to enter into God's house. It is very similar to what we say when we are getting ready for worship. We have the order of worship. And what do we say? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Right? You know it. For we, we, you, know the, you know the hymn, we, the, the psalm. We say it all the time. It is our order of worship. And it is a standard throughout all the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So the same way that we use that kind of opening to enter into worship is the very same way that Psalm 15 was used, which is why it's called an entrance liturgy. Now, now according to Israel's faith, the temple was the house of the Lord or God's house. It was the place where God was. If you wanted God, you go into God's house temple. That's what, as far as Israel's faith was concerned, it was the place where God's name was made to dwell. And the temple was the intersection point between heaven and earth. It was where two realms overlapped. Heaven and earth met. And it was at the temple where God's presence was bringing those two things together. God was seen as dwelling in heaven as well as being present on earth throughout creation. But God's spirit resided in the temple. And anytime you get near or even come into God's presence in the temple, you can be guaranteed that you're going to find the peace that you seek. So it was important for the Israelites to think about, wait a second, who can enter into God's temple? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within the gates, O Jerusalem. And we know it for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. And I'd rather be in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. This was our entrance hymn. Now, with this understanding, God is everywhere. God's spirit was everywhere. And so the idea here is that God now is dwelling in the temple and he's waiting for people who he has invited to come in. I don't know how many of you know this, but when you go to church, worship in any church is always an invitation. You don't just take yourself up and walk into the house of God and say, I just want to do what I You are being invited into the presence of a holy God. To enter into God's presence conveys a sense that there is almost like an aura about God. It, it, see, it's almost like, if you, if you like to watch Star Trek like I used to do, it's like you got a force field around the ship. 
right? So God's aura is like a force field, and, and it's not easy to penetrate it. But, but you're not penetrating it simply because you want to be saved or safe. You're penetrating it because you understand that there is something of benefit that you get from being in God's presence. Being in the protection of God. We know this. We talk about what? When we pray sometimes, what do we want? A hedge of protection from God, right? It is being in God's presence in a way that nothing that is not of God can be anywhere near you. So the text reflects a belief that God's transcending presence will transform any space and then it begs the question, who, oh God, can be in your presence? This is a critical observation, church, because I want you to understand something. If God's presence can transform even this sanctuary or even your home or wherever you find yourself. If God's abiding presence can come into your space, the question is not so much who can be there as much as it is who cannot be there. I don't know if you count that. It's not just about who can be there but who cannot be there for evil and anything, any iniquity, anything that is not of God cannot be in God's presence. So, so that alone will let you know, especially for those of us who are dealing with demonic forces, for many of us who are dealing with challenges in our lives from all kinds of spirits, from all kinds of places, just slip into God's presence just to escape. But you must be invited in. So right off the bat, if you and I know that we think evil thoughts continually, I just prayed that we, what do we do? Our righteousness is as but filthy rags. You know that we harbor evil thoughts in our minds and in our hearts continually. Then then it stands to reason, based on what I just said, that you nor I can be in God's presence. I don't know what you're hearing, but I want to make sure that I speak this in a way that is clear. You or I, we're not qualified to be in God's presence. No matter how good you think you are, we are not qualified to be in God's presence. Why? Because nothing that is not of God, nothing that is evil, including the evil in your hearts and mind, can be in the presence of God. So why on earth would God even begin to invite us into worship? It's a troubling question. Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent. Who may dwell in your holy hill? And so, with the question, we get to the second point of the psalm, which is now the response. The thing that is unusual about Psalm 15 is the fact that it focuses exclusively on moral requirements to complete to the complete exclusion of anything cultic, physical, or even sacrificial. I'll explain. In other words, the, the psalm spoke purely in ethical terms, thereby transforming what we normally know about access to God's presence from something ritually based to something that's ethically based. Let me bring it down your street. The psalm is referring not to what you bring, 
but instead it's referring to who you bring. You see, for many of us, what do we try to do? We try to appease God. We try to do things that we think is going to make us qualified to be in God's presence. But God is not concerned about the what you do. God is concerned about the who you are. Who are you? Because the question didn't ask, what, oh God, can come into your temple? It said, who? And so I want you to understand that many of us have this tendency to get caught up in religion. The do's and the don'ts. But there's a very big difference between religion and relationship. Which is why my, my friend Khalid from the Muslim Food Bank wanted to spend some time before we started doing anything. Before we started giving him anything. He said, I need to know who you are. I want to build a relationship with you before I accept anything from you. God has not changed his ways. He's letting us know even then, this is how I function and this is how I operate. Before you can bring your gifts to me. Before you can start pouring anything out on the altar. Who are you? Religion is about rituals and ceremony. Religion does not promote spirituality, but it hinders it. Religion is man-made. Religion is man's search for God. Religion is what man does for God. Religion is man trying to climb up the ladder of his own self-righteousness with the hope of meeting God at the topmost ring. Religion makes one obey from outside without any real change of our natures from the inside. In short, religion teaches all of us how to act which is really consistent with our human nature because we quickly learn how to game the system. Doesn't take much for us to figure out what to do and not to do when we walk through the church doors. We know what the pastor likes, the pastor doesn't like. We know what the ushers need and what they don't need. We, we have figured out all of what goes on in this place. Therefore, we are really, really good at playing church. I'm talking to the church. I'm using terms that you understand. And what I'm saying is we have become so good at it because we have been doing it for so long. And is there any wonder why we sometimes ask ourselves the question, I don't think God was in that place. When you bring what the host does not want, the host will not stay in that place. So we end up going through the same rote behaviors over and over again. And we have produced a whole generation of church people and robots who are as hypocritical as whitewashed walls. Beautiful on the outside, but completely dead on the inside. All form and no substance. This is why the quote stood out to me. It said, let there be no compulsion in religion. Let there be no do this or else you get that. There, let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from wrong. Truth is, truth transcends all kinds of religious behavior that has the power to usurp all kinds of oppressive wrongs. I'll tell you a quick memory that I have. Back in the 2016 General Conference in Philadelphia, I remember 
when I had an opportunity to go on the floor. And there were so many arguing and so much, it was really a little bit contentious, I recall. But I remember that just as they were about to get on with the business of electing the bishops, someone from an African delegation got up and said, stop, stop. And everyone was concerned, why did he stop the process, what was getting ready to happen? And he stopped it simply because he said, before we do this, from the African, one of the African delegations, before we do this, can we pray? And that struck me. Before we get to the business of figuring out who's going to be the next leaders and bishops in the church, out of nowhere, this man just stood up and said, can we just pray? The point is, is that we fail to recognize that the church, the church is a spiritual organism before it is a political organization. We are the church of Jesus Christ. He did not die so we could go around and put on airs. And so I'm wondering to myself, since relationship is such a big deal to God, is God in our churches? And oh, by the way, if it's so easy for anyone to come into the building, when he is the one that invites us in, maybe it's because he's not there. What do you do when God is no longer in the temple. What do you do? And that's why I wanted this to be a very sobering message to us. Because we have come to a time in our age, in our history, in this nation, where we seem to be moving further and further away from God. It may not seem like it, but what is really happening is it's a little bit at a time. And by the time you look around and you see from whence we have come, the question becomes, how did we get here? Because when God asks the question, who will come into my holy temple? We failed. We failed. And I'm saying we, we failed to respond to what God has asked. And what has God asked? He, we said, oh Lord, who may come into your temple? God says this, he who walks with integrity, verse 2 in the psalm, and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. If you really pay close attention to the list of the things that the psalm refers to, you will quickly notice that nowhere does it say, if you bring your sacrifices, you can enter into God's temple. You can bring your money, you can enter into God's temple. You bring your gifts to the Lord, you can enter into God's temple, and he will let you in. No, it doesn't say that. The entire response is about how your behavior, which is based on your character, impacts your neighbor. This is God's requirement in order to enter into his presence. The psalm is about your character and mine. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you look at what it also says. He then goes on to say, and speaks truth in his heart. That's the person who is invited into the presence of the Lord where nothing evil can dwell. Yes, sir. But there's a double meaning to the phrase. Those who enter into God's presence are both sincere in how they speak and they are peaceful 
in what they say. God's people don't slander and taunt their neighbor, which is really saying that, that we should not do things in such a way that it causes social shame to our brothers or even a rejection of anyone else. Listen, we have a really good reputation, church, of going around and judging people and telling people who can be in and who can be out. Imagine that. That's like somebody coming to your house, standing at your front door, don't know you, don't live there, and telling your guests who you have invited that they can't come in. Who do you think you are? And that's what we do in the church because the fact of the matter is many of us who are keeping people out of the church are not even in the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm just saying. So we got to be mindful of our silent complicity when we are rejecting those who God has invited into his temple. So the message of the psalm in the final analysis is simply this. Who gets invited to your dinner at your place, O God? And it's answered with the response, the one who loves their neighbor as themselves. Which brings us to the last section of the psalm, which is the promise. Are we to interpret that the person who does all of these things are able to enter into God's presence and that they will never falter, they'll never make mistakes, and they'll never, end, they'll, they'll never fail again? No. We can't reasonably expect that. Rather, the promise is to those who walk with integrity in God's laws. And they will find that their lives start to attract to them people who are also walking into integrity. What I'm saying to you is, if you are living your life in a certain way, that you are to the best of your ability demonstrating the integrity with which you seek to aspire and to live, you will attract people around you which are also walking in their integrity. And as iron sharpens iron, as you walk with like-minded people, as you are yoked with people who believe what you believe, who understands that all of their righteousness is as but filthy rags, that we are all just pilgrims on our way, trying to make the best that we can of this life that has been given to us. We are moving in a direction towards the holiness of God. We have denounced the profane. We have embraced the sacred. We are trying to do our very best and we recognize that because we are not perfect. We neither have those expectations of others who themselves are not perfect, but we lock arms with each other and we walk together that when we get to the door, we can say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. And I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. If you've been through some things and you understand that you are not the best, but you're doing the best you can, God says, I like you. Come, for where you fall short, I will make up the rest. I will make up the gap. Where you fall short, I will make up the difference. Yes, that is the grace of God. Yes, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Well, it doesn't mean that everything that you do is on point. It uh-huh. simply means that you recognize yeah. 
your own shortcomings. You recognize your own failings. You recognize your need for the Savior. That's what we're talking about. It is, a, it, is, it is to be thought of as a man who is so thirsty, so thirsty, and someone offers you a drink of water. The drink of water doesn't say that you are perfect. You're just thirsty. You just need, and when you get that drink of water, you are so happy. That is the presence of God. In the presence of God, there is the satisfaction for the longings of your soul. It is the part of you that recognizes that everything around me doesn't work. And I don't understand it. But if I can make it to the temple, if I can make it into the presence of God, then it will be for me like drinking ice cold water on a hot summer day. So the question is, oh Lord, who may abide in your temple? Who may dwell on your holy hill? God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? God, how can we get on your guest list? You get on God's guest list through the divine invitation. The divine invitation. The divine invitation is this. Quite simply. Not going to over-spiritualize it. The divine invitation is simply this. As I think about Khalid, my Muslim friend, or as you think about someone who we have marginalized, someone for whatever reason we don't believe in whatever, we don't believe that they know God. I don't know what the issues are that keeps us from treating people as if they are not human beings created in the image of God. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm simply just saying to you, we have so many reasons why we think, why we think people shouldn't be in God's house. So here is the divine invitation. Quite simply, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the divine invitation. It didn't say, for God so loved Christians. For God so loved AMEs. For God so loved Church of God in Christ. You name it. You fill in the gaps. God says, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. By accepting this free invitation, by accepting this gift of God, then you now qualify to abide in God's temple to dwell on his holy hill. And if God wills, through the power of his Holy Spirit, you can abide with him forever.
Eugene Peter says, walk straight. Act right. Tell the truth. Don't hurt your friend. Don't blame your neighbor. Despise the despicable. Keep your word. Keep your word. Even if it costs you. Make an honest living. Never take a bribe. God gives us through the power of his Holy Spirit the ability to overcome whatever it is that is keeping us out of God's holy temple. Yes, and because of this divine invitation, you and I are welcome to come in. Amen. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.